I ended up in my office at work. They closed the curtains, turned off the lights, locked the door, turned off the phones, and I crawled behind my desk. I was there in a fetal position for four hours. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited tonight with us. We have Donald G. Mondragon II. Donald goes by Skip. He is an internal medicine physician, a 26-year Army veteran, an author, and a mental health advocate. Skip, welcome to the show. Thank you, Al. I'm delighted to be here. Skip, I'm, uh, you know, particularly excited. I mean, as a medical physician and uh, and an Army veteran, those are two uh, different backgrounds of people that I have interviewed. I don't think I've had anybody who is the combined uh, professional like yourself, but two really important pieces as far as the impact of depression and and I think both have certain challenges in reaching out when they're struggling with depression. In particular, you know, doctors and Army veterans, I have found it's been challenging for many of them to reach out for help for different reasons. Indeed, that's correct. Both in my profession and certainly as vets, I think the idea that we are caretakers as physicians and oftentimes we neglect ourselves and then as soldiers, we're tough. You know, we just suck it up and drive on. And as men, especially, do not want to admit I'm hurting. I need help. Yeah, exactly. Physicians and, and oftentimes other professions that are the caretaking professions, firemen, first responders, educators, I believe, as an educator, uh, mental health professionals, people who are taking care of others, as you mentioned, often neglect to take care of ourselves and just push through it for the sake of helping others, which isn't always the best thing to do. That is for sure. And as you said, Army veterans who have to be tough and maybe are in fear of other pieces about, I don't know, dismissals of, of the military and the, the stigma that goes along with that as well. So really uh, excited to talk to you about that more tonight. Also, uh, I'm curious, as a child, do you think you uh, dealt with any type of mental illness yourself growing up? I don't think I did as a child. I was looking back retrospectively. I, I don't know if there was uh, has always been perhaps a low level of depression and some anxiety that I would have never thought it was there. We could come back to that. But I think I that I was depressed in college on a couple of occasions there, my freshman year and my junior year, and had not realized that's what was going on. 
Right. What about, I read a bit about you kind of dealing with some bullying. Was that? Oh my was, goodness, yes. <laughs> was that when you were young, a, a child? I was, I was bullied from my earliest memories up until I started wrestling. I was typically the smallest kid in my class and oftentimes the new kid in my class. We moved a lot and I was shy and I was awkward. I was athletically uh, inept and so on all counts I lacked any status and an easy target for bullies and so I was bullied mercilessly um, and then when I discovered wrestling and began to wrestle in 13 at the age of 13 in eighth grade then the bullies decided to leave me alone I wasn't any <laughs> right. bigger I was small yeah the small wrestled in the lightest weight classes but those bullies decided to leave me alone. And I laugh about it now, say, come on, what happened? Where are they at now? <laughs> that is funny. What, how would you describe the bullying when you were at that young age? Oh, they'd push me around. Uh, they'd uh, make fun of me. They'd threaten me. Um, they'd hit me. <laughs> yeah, so physical as well as the uh, mental pieces. Oh, my goodness, yes. I'd and, get teased. I'd get shunned. I'd be, did did uh, you also have a core of friends, or was it? were you pretty... Um... Uh, I, I, I oftentimes didn't have friends. Uh, there might have been one, one or two friends at best that I would have at any time, but typically I didn't have uh, a group of friends. Mm -hmm. And were you able to share with... Uh, any adult in school or at home about the bullying that you were succumbed to? No, in those days when I was growing up, I'm I'm 64 now, and in, in those days it was being it was called picked on. You know, you were being picked on, and that was not something you brought home. And, uh, my mother was raising eight children. My father was in and out of was not really in the picture. He was mentally ill in, in VA hospitals. My grandmother lived with us and she cared for us while my mother went back to uh, school and then to work. So it was not something I, I carried home to say, gee, you know, the kids are picking on me at school. That's just not something, you know, I just internalized it. Right. And out it on my own. And nobody, nobody at school either, no counselor or anything um, no. to reach out to. No. That That's tough. And you, uh, you had, had the, Eight siblings? Seven. Seven siblings plus you. Correct. Wow. Big family. Um, was it a tight group of kids? Oh, How my How would goodness, you describe yes. the relationships? Oh, wonderful. We are all very close and extremely close. So we all love being together and enjoying our time together and wish we had more time together. So, Growing yes. up uh, as well as kids, were you pretty close in age? Oh, yes. There's only 10 years that separate us wow oh my goodness <laughs> yes. so your mom had a full plate indeed she did uh -huh. and are you able to share a bit more about your dad and the type of mental illness he was dealing with surely my my dad was a very fun and loving man <clears throat> and yet his older sister my aunt uh, my auntie mary and my older cousins that knew him well said that when he came back from the Korean War, he was not the same man. He came back uh, a very broken man, morose at times, angry, uh, alcoholic, uh, as I said, in and out of the VA hospitals, more time in than he was out. And 
he was on different medications. I remember sometimes when he'd come to visit that he might stay in the bedroom dark for a week, a couple weeks maybe at a time, at least a week or more, lights off and just smoking cigarettes, never come out of that room. Wow, that must have been tough. That was while you were young? Yes, and then uh, he would be violent uh, when he would drink, uh, very, very violent and abusive. Thank goodness I don't have uh, really memories of that. My older sister does, and it really wasn't until I was well into my 30s that my mother shared uh, the how abusive he was. She, she never talked badly about my dad uh, when we grew up. She simply said, your dad is ill. So I'm convinced that based on his behavior, he'd be gone for days. He would just simply take off. He gambled away the car. My mom tells a story when I was three years old and my birthday party, he said he was going to go pick up ice cream for the cake. He left, didn't come back for a few days. And this kind of behavior would go on. So I'm convinced that he had bipolar disorder. He was quote unquote uh, schizophrenic according to the VA docs, but behavior my mom describes. I think it was bipolar and that he would become psychotic. Okay. Right. That must have been really, really challenging. And I found it interesting just the way you described it as he would visit the home almost as if the VA hospital was really where he was living. Yes, that's correct. Uh-huh. So you did, he, it does not sound like he was a, a, a large part of your life, unfortunately, because of his mental illness. Correct. Uh-huh. Is he still around? No, my dad, at the age of 35, he was on an experimental drug with very strict instructions to not drink when you're taking this medication, and he did, and he died. Wow. So sorry to hear that. How old were you at the time? I was 13. Okay. Wow. Must have been incredibly traumatic for the family. Oh my goodness, yes. How did the family, what, how did it impact the family? You know, it's an interesting question because in my family, there's a lot of that discussion didn't go on, and I'm not sure why, but in later years, uh, at least among some of his siblings, uh, my sister Roma and I in particular, my oldest sister, and then my brother Chris and I, uh, we have uh, discussed those things uh, in detail. You know, I asked my mom about some of these things and her memories, she said, I, I don't remember. You know, I, I, don't, I don't recall some of those things. I think due to the trauma that she was and the stress she was under that you know, she's blocked that out because I, for instance, do not have virtually any memories before the age of seven. I, other than a couple fleeting memories, I have absolutely no memories before the age of seven. Right. Yeah, I can't imagine what your mom was going with with a spouse who passes away and then eight kids to raise. Yeah, well, at that point, she she had already been... Uh, divorced uh, from my dad, my dad and a wonderful man, uh, my daddy-o, uh, as we called him, had entered our lives. So she was remarried and our lives were being, you know, we're readjusting. And so my daddy-o was in our lives at that point. So that was, 
that certainly stabilized. He was a stabilizing force. I, I tell people my my abuelita, my little grandma, she was the hub of the family. And my daddy o he he was the wheel of the family that that kept us all together and running. And uh, for the grace of God, I don't know what we would have done without both of them. Right. And I thought I remember also reading about uh, the fact that you did some caretaking of some of your siblings as well. I was always in charge of my four younger brothers. Really? The time, as long as I can remember. In what ways would you be the caretaker for them? Son, watch your brothers. Son, take care of your brothers. Son, make sure your your brothers make their beds and do their chores. Uh, just having to watch them and supervise them and look after them. <laughs> I can remember when we lived on the Zuni Pueblo there in Zuni, New Mexico. That was my mom's first teaching job. We'd go out playing at that point. Let's see, I would have been 10 and... Uh, nine and ten when we moved there we want to go play and my mother would say if you want to go take your little brother with you and my brother brothers mark and frank and i would just groan oh mom do we have to if you want to go take your little brother with you so chris is seven years my junior so you come on you little kid come on mom says you have to go with us (laughs) That is funny. Seems like typical sibling uh, stuff going on there. And the funny thing is now, Chris and I are the two that are, uh, you know, that I'm, he's the one that I'm closest to. But we had to take him every place we went if we wanted to go someplace. Take your brother with you. Oh, mom, do we have to? That is funny. <laughs> and then you mentioned age 13, you found wrestling, which I know you mentioned a little bit, but like wrestling became a huge piece of your life, didn't it? It did indeed. I, I had tried other sports and I was miserable not having a older brother, not having a father around to teach you anything, how to catch a ball, how to throw something. How to, how to, I couldn't run well. I, I was weak. I just lacked any athletic skills whatsoever. And so I had tried basketball. I had tried softball. I had tried baseball, you know, gymnastics, a few other things. And, uh, you no. Know, out on the playground, I was even a failure at tetherball. <laughs> <laughs> and typically, when we'd go out to play, our teams would be um, chosen. So you'd have teams chosen uh, out on the playground. And I was the last kid chosen. And then the team that I had to be on, by default, they'd all say, Ah, oh, why does he have to be on our team? <laughs> I recall in, uh, in fourth and it was in fourth grade that a couple times, a few times each year that we'd have to go out to the playground and our teacher would test us. The boys in chin-ups and the girls in dead arm hang. And I would dread, oh my gosh, I would dread for my name to be called. This was in Zuni. So I'd jump up to the lowest bar, and I'd grunt, and I'd kick, and I'd pull with all my might and not even get one chin up. And oh, my gosh, that was just humiliating. 
Man, I remember that same thing, and and I'm a bit younger than you, not a ton younger, but I'm a bit younger than you, but I remember that as well, and now I just think as an educator, and you just said it perfectly, I mean, what a way to humiliate a kid or, or just have surround them with shame by, all right, your turn, let's see how many pull-ups you can do in front of the class. Right. Oh, that's awful. So I get to eighth grade, and I've been a miserable failure at all these other things, been bullied throughout uh, my years and so it was the first time I there was a sport and I get in there to the practice room and after a few days I'm thinking hmm, I think I can do this I think I could be good at this and I was also excited because I could finally compete against boys my own size I wasn't competing against these guys that were a lot bigger so it leveled the playing field for one, and sure enough, I was the only eighth grader to, to make the varsity team. And then uh, I must say, however, in eighth grade, I didn't win a match. In ninth grade, I was the best wrestler in the wrestling room. I'm sorry to say I still didn't win a match because I'd get so uptight the night before the match. I sit there and toss and turn and toss and turn all night long and not get a wink of sleep so I would be so exhausted mentally and emotionally and physically <laughs> I didn't wrestle very well the next day right and then it wasn't until after ninth grade there was a summer tournament so I enjoyed wrestling freestyle one of the two Olympic styles uh, very much that there was a, a state tournament I entered that and won my first match, my second match, and my third match, and my fourth match. And then in the finals, I'm wrestling a kid that had been the defending champion at that tournament the year before, and I, I defeated him. And that was my, my first success in wrestling, the first matches I ever won in wrestling. Oh, that's fantastic. Were you able to establish a, a core of friends through wrestling? And uh, how about your relationship with the coach? Did, was that a, a positive role model in your life at the point? Oh, absolutely. I have, uh, especially, so you had your wrestling buddies. Wrestling's a small community, and wrestlers are a very, it's a very distinct culture. And I have two very close friends to this day, Charlie Charlie Nichols and Russ Wog. And so they're my two wrestling buddies. So that summer, that ninth grade year, with our high school coach, who was going to be our high school coach, Ken Larson, he took us to different tournaments in the state of Colorado. And so that for, began to forge our relationship. And we got to know Coach Larson better. So I had a very good relationship with Coach uh, Ken Larson throughout high school. Yes, indeed. One incident with Ken Larson that just flashed through my mind. I, I was, uh, unfortunately, Charlie and, and Russ got uh, injured our senior year, and uh, they both would have been uh, on the on the medalist stands there. Russ certainly would have been a state champion. He had defeated the eventual state champion soundly, I think, by a score of 72 when he wrestled him earlier in the year. Um, yeah, but it's the, it was the quarterfinals. Um, 
or the state tournament my senior year. And I was in a fog during most of the match, and I'm wrestling a kid I knew, Bobby Lucero from Montrose High School. Montrose had a very, very strong, parentally strong wrestling program. And we're wrestling, and Bobby's beating me, and I'm in this fog thinking, oh, my gosh. And I can just – felt like I was in molasses. And these thoughts are running through my mind. Oh, is this how it's going to end? Is this how my career is going to end? Oh, my goodness. And I don't know what I did, but eventually I tied the match in regulation time. And then there was a short break before overtime. And standing in the corner, and Coach Larson is giving me the finger. And we all knew what that meant when you wrestled for Coach Larson. That meant he took his index finger and he's poking you right in the chest and saying, You better wrestle for this. You know how to better this. That was the only time Coach ever had to give me the finger. And I went out there and I took it to Bobby big time. And by the time overtime was over, Bobby was gasping for air. We shook hands. He said, Boy, Skip, you're in really good shape, aren't you? <laughs> That is funny. You know, that reminds me one thing I wanted to say about wrestling. It's interesting that, you know, you considered yourself kind of a a kid who wasn't successful in any sport. And uh, in my mind, like, I think very highly of wrestlers. Uh, I played hockey as a youngster for a long time. I played football as well. My junior year of high school, I decided to give hockey a break and try wrestling and Man, just to last an entire round if you don't get stuck is <laughs> grueling. Is grueling. It's like three minutes, and it's so. I yes. mean, you have got to be in such good shape. Yes, indeed. That's it, incredible. And then uh, you know all the weight considerations and guys wearing sweatpants and sweatshirts <laughs> in a small hot room, sweating so you can make the lower weight. Like, yeah, it is. That's an intense, intense sport. It is. That's that's when I talk, like, that's part of the reason I've chosen that uh, logo and the motto, wrestling is not for wimps. Right. And that's what I tell young kids because it has so many applications in life. Absolutely. When you went away to college, did you continue wrestling in college? I I did. I was at the University of Notre Dame. I was on an ROTC scholarship there. Oh, awesome. I, I did wrestle. I was a mediocre at best college wrestler. I got injured my uh, my freshman year, uh, injured my knee, and only had wrestled eight matches at that point. I was out for the rest of the year. Came back my sophomore year. I was a starter at, at 118 pounds. Again, about 500 record, and then my junior year came back, and I was struggling. I was really struggling. So I had mentioned that I thought I was depressed when I look back in retrospect. I I knew I was uh, that first semester went into a funk, and and it as beautiful as the campus is there at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Once once that rain starts and that and the sky, skies get gray and then it gets cold and the trees shed their leaves and that wind whips off of Lake Michigan <laughs> and then the snow begins to fall and you're cutting weight uh, and up early 
classes all day, you go to practice, you rush to get to the dining hall, and then you know you've got three, four hours of studying ahead of you, and then you start that all over day in and day out. And meanwhile, you're managing your weight. You know, I was, I was homesick. I was lovesick. I was <laughs> there, and if not for a group of some Christian uh, brothers and sisters who took me under their wings, especially some Christian brothers, I I would have left Notre Dame, I think, that first semester because I was just really struggling. Really? Do you remember any specific uh, symptoms that you were dealing with at the time? I, I, was, I was so lonely. I was really, really lonely. Uh, I was discouraged. I had lost my confidence. I felt isolated. Right. I think those were the the biggest uh, symptoms that I that I noticed is discouraged it was a big one and just kind of this heaviness this pall that that, that I felt and had I not been thinking back I I don't think I would have ever classified myself as depressed during that first semester but in retrospect I do believe I was right a lot goes on as a freshman, right? When you leave home and you're dealing with school and you were dealing with sports. And like you said, the weather takes a turn. I mean, and it's, it's your first time living away for, from home for many, many freshmen in college. And, uh, right. you do hear about it. A lot of kids going through some pretty challenging times and, right. and depression. And I know here at the university of Minnesota, I'm here at Minnesota. I have heard that they've really ramped up their mental health support and the number of counselors, um, because of what they're seeing with their, the college students. Mm-hmm. Were you do, uh, studying pre-med then at the time? I, I was. I was uh, a pre-med student at the time, yes. So from Notre Dame, you went on to med school? Well, no, I had an interesting twist there. So I actually left the University of Notre Dame in my fifth semester. I was struggling again as a junior, really uncertain what I was going to do, where I felt a calling from God. And I just, I didn't know how to carry that out. And I wrestled with that uh, and wondered, how can I do this? What should I be doing? And wasn't doing well in school. And again, I was feeling really down discouraged, uh, frustrated, and I ended up leaving school that semester. It terminated my scholarship, went back home, and for about a year, maybe not quite a year, I sought God. Thank goodness my parents were so so patient with me. Sometimes I thought, man, oh man, <laughs> what they must have been thinking about their son. And Ended up doing odd jobs, and then I went to work with the ministry in Arkansas for about a year. Came back, and again, working odd jobs. Worked at a gym. I worked at a car wash. I worked at a nursing home. And through my our family doctor, he, he had mentioned to my parents. So, so I left Notre Dame in 75, and now I moved back home in 77, in the summer of 77 and now early 78 approximately that time it's uh, December of 79 let's say 
my mom mentioned, oh, Dr. Gill said he wanted to come, uh, you to stop by the office and spend some time with him, Skip. So I made arrangements to go see Dr. Gill in early January. And I remember it was a bleak, gray day with slush, you know, that gray, dark slush that gets when the snow starts to melt. Went to his office and we had a simple lunch. I remember it was cheese and crackers, apples, as I recall, peanut butter. That's right. Peanut butter on crackers. <laughs> that was our fancy lunch. And Dr. Gill uh, and I chatted. And he asked, son, Skip, what are, you, what are you planning on doing? Well, Dr. Gill, I'm thinking about going back to school. I, I'm thinking possibly get going back pursuing uh, pre-med. But, um, and so he had already planned the day, uh, the afternoon out. He took me around and he uh, had me talk with one of his surgical colleagues, uh, an internal medicine doc, a cardiologist, a pathologist, radiologist. Each of these persons, each of these different doctors seem to have all the time in the world for me. I got rushed, just took their time to answer questions. And then we came back to Dr. Gill's office and, and then chatted and he said, Skip, so so what are you going to be doing? Well, Dr. Gill, I think I, think I want to go back to to school, but a smaller school that has its, has its own medical school. And he said, that sounds like a good good plan, Skip. But he said, whatever you do, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went out of that office and I started doing my research. I narrowed it down to two schools, to Creighton University and the University, or, or rather Oral Roberts University. At that time, Creighton, of course, had a very good program. Or Roberts University was going to be starting their medical school. So I applied to both, uh, was accepted to both, and due to the philosophy at Or Roberts University, educating the whole man, body, mind, and spirit, I, I chose to uh, attend Or Roberts University, so I matriculated there in 1978. Was meeting with those doctors a, a huge turning point for you, or was it? were you pretty set before that? Uh, on it, medicine it I thought the spark for medicine had died when I left the University of Notre Dame so that it was actually Dr. Gill I think that relit that and that spark and they just flamed it you know fanned that spark some but it was really Dr. Gill uh-huh oh that's awesome so then you applied, uh, got into the two schools, cho- made your decision, and was med school pretty a pretty successful experience for you then? Well, I was still undergrad, mind you. So oh, right, <laughs> right. So so I, I entered Oral University in 1978 because of all the general ed requirements that they require there. I didn't get my degree till I was uh, till 81. So I start college in 73 get my degree in 81 and i'm thinking my parents must have been saying thank you thank you (laughs) thank you lord our son is finally graduated right (laughs) that's awesome and from from their med school pursued correct Uh uh-huh and where did you do med school at the same school then yes that's correct right 
and uh, studied internal medicine? Well, you do finish medical school, then you go on to residency training, and that's where I pursued internal medicine. Okay, gotcha. So you go to med school, become a doctor, and uh, tell us from there how the military plays a part. Oh, very good. Well, I wanted to get married. So when I went to Oroberts University, I had just had my heart mended. I had been very much in love with a young woman. And when that relationship broke up, it took me about three years for my heart to mend. And it had just recently been mended when I arrived at Oroberts University. So I got to the campus of Oroberts University with the idea of mine. Girls, forget them. Who needs them? They take your money. They take your time. And they take your heart. Time? No way. I'm, I got to study and get into medical school. Money? What money? I didn't have any. And heart? Absolutely not. I am not giving my heart away. And then that first week there, I met this lovely young woman by the name of Sharon Jane Cooper, and she ruined my plans. <laughs> and so we were uh, soon fell in love and during those next few years, we decided, yes, we wish to be married. I had to have a way to support a wife and had been thinking about the military because I already had a previous ROTC scholarship and knew that the Army had scholarships for medical school for those that wish to be military physicians. So I applied for one. I did receive that. And so the day... First of all, the day we got our notice that uh, we were going to be, ex- that I was accepted to medical school, Sherry, at that time, was running around with this notice, we're going to medical school, we're going to medical school. <laughs> and I told her, honey, before it's all said and done, that's going to be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> and then when we got the Army scholarship, then between my my meagerly stipend and then with her a fellowship that she received uh, when she attended uh, University of Tulsa for her master's degree between the two of those. Then we we managed to get by. Uh, so that allowed us to get married. Excellent. And at the time, were you uh, anticipating a 26-year military career? I had planned on doing a career in the Army, not necessarily... 26 years, but at least 20, 20 plus, yeah. Okay, so you had anticipated that. Had you anticipated uh, the large number of deployments that you had? That's a good question. (laughs) I guess you don't think about it in in terms of that because there hadn't been a, uh, we had just come through, uh, you know, Vietnam was long past and there hadn't been any mass uh, deployments for some time, so it really wasn't so much on my radar. However, knowing what the Army did, it wasn't something that I was surprised by when they did come. Uh, unlike some individuals uh, that I knew there, so did I expect that I was going to spend 30 months in combat zones? Uh, no. <laughs> So at times when you were not deployed, were you working in 
a military hospital type of setting or what was the setting you were working in? Yes, that's correct. I was, I was in military hospitals. And deployments, where, where and when was your first deployment? My first deployment was, I was stationed in at Fort Sill Army or, or Fort Sill, Oklahoma at Reynolds Army Community Hospital. And we uh, were deployed, I was deployed with the 47th Field Hospital uh, during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Into a combat zone. Right, right. Thankfully, we were in the rear, if you will. We were in Bahrain, uh, however, with the range of, of missiles and rockets and other weaponry that Saddam Hussein had. Uh, we were certainly well within range. Alarms would go off, and we'd put on our so-called mop gear, you know, per- chemical protective gear, and take cover. We did that many 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 times and what's going through your mind at the time i mean those times must have been scary and and your medical background was internal medicine right so what is what is your medical role how does your medical role change and what's your mindset as you're gearing up for possible chemical attacks you're saying you're praying that <laughs> that it, that First of all, that those weapons aren't going to be deployed anywhere close if they are, and if they are, that they're not going to be uh, chemical weapons, certainly, that you have to contend with. But at the same time, going through your mind, you're, you're, you're rehearsing, okay, what am I going to have to do to take care of casualties? What, what will we have to do? How will we have to do it? You've trained. We've trained. Uh, we've made preparations, and so you're going through those steps in your mind, and you're praying feverishly that you won't have to do those things. And meanwhile, you're sweating like a dog, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. And three out of four of your deployments were in combat zones. And I would imagine uh, some of the medical work you were doing was around trauma. As, as an internist, uh, I would help take care of the medical problems. So if the individual ended up in the ICU, I would serve as the intensivist managing their problems, taking care of them, for instance, if they're on the uh, mechanical ventilator, tending to their infections, if they had cardiac problems, respiratory problems, etc. cetera. Um, so, but I might see them on the first end, in other words, when they first came in with trauma, We'd have trauma teams set up. So if there was a mass cacao happening, so you know several victims uh, of trauma that would come in. So multiple soldiers, individuals, or sometimes they would even be, you know, civilians or the combatants that they were contending with that would be brought in. Uh, that you would tend to those initial injuries and. Then they'd be triaged and sorted out who would be going to the operating room first and stabilizing the others. So, yes, I would be involved with that sometimes. Uh-huh. And work, it sounds like, with a team of doctors. Yes, 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 absolutely. And during that time, did your mental health take a hit? You know, I was very stable, as I recall, during... During my deployments, I, 
purposely did some things during that time. I uh, spent time in prayer, spent time with my scriptures. I spent time uh, making sure I was well connected with my my spouse and my kids. And so for the most part, I, I always weathered those things very well. And I don't remember really uh, becoming down uh, seriously and that that was a problem um, during the deployments. You might have some down days and discouraging days, certainly. And it was also always painful when you lost um, patience and to see these young soldiers come in disfigured and uh, realize that their lives were forever going to be changed and to see the impact it had on these young soldiers helping to take care of them who had never seen trauma, who had never seen death, having to try to help them to cope with it. And, and probably not a lot of support for their peers. I mean, they're in the middle of a war. They probably can't take much downtime to, to get over a buddy's death that they just witnessed. Right, right. Yeah. So you make it through your deployments. You're, uh, tell us about when you did first start experiencing depression. Well, we were preparing to retire. So in 2013, looking at all the various things that needed to be done leading up to retirement, being a caretaker, I had put off a variety of surgeries and things that should have taken care of <laughs> earlier. There were Your own surgeries. Yeah, so I had some surgical procedures. One was a graft um, on some lower, uh, a lower gum. So I, I had that taken care of. Everything went off without a hitch, except then my, they, they grafted it from the upper hard pellet where they took the skin and then it would do fine, uh, for a bit. And then all of a sudden I just start getting this spurt of blood in my mouth and bleed, 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 bleed. And typically that would happen late at night or early, early morning hours when, of course, the dental clinic wasn't open. And I wasn't, I didn't want to go to the emergency room. So I'd sit there and hold my thumb <laughs> and spit blood till I could get it to slow down. Or maybe yeah, stop. that sounds miserable. And uh, early in the morning, I finally called the clinic and said, I need to come in. Finally, after about the third time that happened, they just cauterized that and it stopped it. But with each of the, that surgery, uh, there was a shoulder, uh, knee surgery and then a, a resurfacing of some scars on my face. But with each of those surgeries, it disrupted my normal routine, your, your exercise, your nutrition, your day in and out routine. And exercise has always been one of those mainstays for me. And I realized that I used it to allay my anxieties. That looking back, I understand now that why for many, many, many years I had to 
exercise incredibly intensely and otherwise I didn't feel like I had a good workout. It was because that's one of the ways that I controlled my anxiety. Right. So did couldn't exercise the way I wanted to, couldn't eat the way I did. It just disrupted my my whole day. I didn't sleep as well. But that summer before uh, there, so about the time I was getting the uh, earlier with the surgeries, I my sleep just became horrible. So uh, sleep became horrible oh, primarily I, I, because of the the recovery of the surgeries, or was it also what was going on in was, your head with uh, the upcoming retirement? Right, that, and then things going on in my department at uh, at uh, at the hospital regarding general uh, the residents and medical students. So some things happened there in our cath our cardiac cath lab and then with dialysis and I took the blame for all of this when really I couldn't have done anything about it but I was taking all the blame for it internally and fretting about it and so I'd go to bed tossing and turning and my sleep just became worse and worse and just how bad did the sleep get eventually it would get that if some nights I didn't get any sleep I just tossed and turned all night long other nights I might get a couple hours and then eventually after a week of this you know be so utterly exhausted I might get six six hours of sleep finally because I was utterly exhausted but I, I could go you know no sleep a couple hours no sleep just at its worst and that progressively got worse until when I was finally diagnosed but my mood became progressively blue I was more discouraged um, became more withdrawn Sherry Sherry would say she had wondered where my get up and go had gone I my cognition became so horrible that I couldn't remember what I read. I couldn't recall common medications and uh, medical syndromes. I thought I was developing pre-senile dementia and fearful of that. I felt incredibly anxious, felt this trembling within and would have this trembling of my hands to go to church to sing and my voice would quiver. And you were still working at the time, right? I was with all this. I was at work. Yeah. And And probably it sounds like ruminating and beating yourself up quite a bit. Yeah, the negative ruminations were horrible. I mean, day in, day out, especially, you know, when the lights lights go out and you're laying there. You know, Skip, you don't deserve to be a colonel. Skip, you're a failure. Skip, you've let your family down. Skip. You've let the army down. Skip, you've let your department down. Nobody's going to want to hire you. Right. All the negative self-talk while you're also, as you mentioned, taking the blame for everything that might be going wrong, internally beating yourself up about these things and blaming yourself inside. Yes. Yeah. I could relate completely to that as well when I was going through depression. Just felt like anybody who complained about anything really was talking about me. So, so 
take us through uh, next steps. So you're you're lacking sleep, losing cognition, really starting to to wonder about your own dementia, mental state. So this progresses. The sleep just worsens and worsens. I'm becoming more and more isolated. The normal things that I would enjoy lose interest in those those passions. Wrestling. There, coaching wrestling, I had been involved in that, lost my interest in that, uh, even watching wrestling, which I have always enjoyed, lost interest in that, didn't want to go out to nor- to social events. You know, I'm not a big partier, but I do enjoy, mm-hmm. I do enjoy going out and mingling and having fun, but I didn't want to go events. It's, I just didn't want to go anywhere. It was just too much energy. It just didn't want to face that. Um, and were you feeling a sense of lack of energy? Oh, yeah. It was it was a struggle there just to get up in the morning and get moving. So yeah. some pretty, pretty classic depression symptoms, the isolating, the ruminating, the lack of interest in things that you really enjoy. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very classic symptoms. Right. It's it's funny now because I, I, I give a speech. I gave it to Toastmasters this past week. If only I had been my own doctor. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's tough when you're in that place, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So it got so bad that on April 17, 2014, I ended up in my office at work at this beautiful corner office with two glass sides to the office there that I closed the curtains, turned off the lights, locked the door, turned off the phones, and I crawled behind my desk. I was there in a fetal position for four hours. Wow. Crying or, or just sitting there? Well, laying there and on that musty carpet mm-hmm. and asking myself, Skip, what are you doing? Skip, what are you doing? How did you get here? What is going on? Over the next four hours, I became a participant observer. And looking back on the past several months, putting the pieces together, and finally admitting to myself, after that four-hour skip, you're depressed. Go get some help. And so I got up and I went and got some help. Really? Went, what, what steps did you take from there? Well, initially I went down to the, uh, the family medicine clinic where my primary care provider worked out of, and asked to get an appointment with a clinical psychologist there, how soon I could do that. That was going to be the week after. So I made an appointment, then I got back to my office and said, eh, I don't want to wait till then. So I called the chief of psychology. There's one of the perks for being another, being a colonel and right. being the chief of my department. And I called him, and explained what was going on, and if there was anybody that I could see uh, sooner. And he arranged an appointment for me to be seen that afternoon. So I know you mentioned that it was four hours essentially looking back, piecing this together, and then you just decided to reach out for help. Was it still really difficult at that point for you to actually call these folks and to make an appointment? 
or had you just finally given in and and how were you feeling was there shame feeling hopeful at that point there there wasn't any shame at that point at this point i was i was determined i was determined i had reached i'd reached the bottom yeah you just I, knew you i couldn't help. get any lower and i couldn't walk in around in denial any longer I knew I needed help, so I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to get help. And so it, it actually was hopeful. Mm-hmm. Was that just a little crack in the door there, that dark, deep pit where you just get a little sliver of light, say, yeah, there's some hope there. Right. And And you knew what you were going through. I mean, you said you realized looking back that it was depression, but... As a as a medical professional, you knew what depression looked like, and probably had even treated people with depression. Oh yes, right. <laughs> yeah, I so knew what it looked like. Uh, was uh, there direction. denial until that point? Oh yeah. Just, yeah, sure, right, sure. Uh-huh. You know, I'm tough. I'm a wrestler. I'm a soldier. I'm a right. man. You know, this is. I just, you know, I just. Work through things, you know. That's always been my modus operandi. Just, I'm tough, you know. I just work through these things, mm-hmm. and it's just another tough thing to work through. You know, I just grind through it, grit your teeth, and yeah. you know, you carry on. So you uh, you make that call and get in immediately, then. So I was I saw, so that was the morning, and so by mid afternoon I was in with a young, uh, very wonderful captain, a clinical psychologist, and we were talking. That's incredibly lucky to be able to make a call in the morning and see somebody that afternoon where a lot of people, when they finally decide to reach out, it can be a challenge to find somebody. Absolutely. It can be a challenge to get into an appointment. So that's awesome that you were able to get in that afternoon. You met and that was a good experience. You shared what was going on. She did a very thorough, I was quite impressed actually, how thorough the intake was. And as we finished up, she said, the chief and I have talked about uh, who would be a good fit for you in terms of for counseling. And we decided uh, that Colonel Mike Perry, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Perry, and you would be very work very effectively together. So we've arranged her, um, for you to meet him. And so my next appointments were with him. He was amazing. And so that was the start of uh, meeting with a psychologist, talk therapy. Correct. Uh huh. And tell us about that experience. Was it was sharing your story? I'm guessing. Right. And there were sessions in there. So Mike took time. Uh, and M- Mike is. He comes in, the first time I meet him, this tall, distinguished-looking, calm, um, African-American man just brought this presence about him of calmness, of assurance. Uh, And we hit it off, Uh, both uh, Christians, family men, dedicated soldiers, and there was just a right from the beginning, just this sense that we were going to work effectively together. And so he took time to get to know me 
and find out my story and then began to work with some cognitive behavioral therapy and addressing those, a lot of time addressing those negative ruminations. We spent a lot of time on that and other strategies. Were you seeing him weekly then at that point? Correct. Uh huh. And in the meantime, you're seeing somebody weekly. That's an awesome start. But at, at that, at the same time, you're still dealing with your depression when you're not with him. Correct. Uh-huh. And early on, then he recommended I, then I go see my family uh, or, or my um, my primary care provider, so my internal medicine doc, and I saw her. She did a thorough evaluation. As you may or may not be aware, there are other medical conditions that can be associated with depression, anything from heart disease, severe heart disease, thyroid disease, certainly substance abuse, eating disorders, etc. And so she did an evaluation and at the end then said, well, Dr. Mondragon, I think, I think we should put you on some medicine. What do you think? I said, yes, I agree. <laughs> right. And so uh, she started uh, started me on uh, an antidepressant. And was the antidepressant, I know you talked a fair amount about the challenging of getting a good night's sleep. Did the antidepressant help with your sleep, or how was your sleep at that point? The antidepressant helped uh, some, but not anywhere near as much as I would like. So my mood certainly was improving. My cognition was improving. The sleep some, but not as much as we would have liked. And I did have then uh, some mood elevation on the SSRI. They had me on the serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor that they put me, that she put me on. And uh, with that, then they ended up, uh, she ended up referring me to the psychiatrist. So switched to another medication, and it ended up elevating my mood also. They didn't give me a formal diagnosis of bipolar, but said, you know, mood disorder not otherwise specified, but tending towards uh, bipolar. And so then I ended up on, uh, but with that, they gave me some medication to help with sleep and certainly then I began to sleep better and so I ended up on mood stabilizers and uh, some medication to sleep. Do you recall why the psychiatrist would change your first medication if it seemed to have been improving your mood? Uh, because it was elevating my mood too much. I was oh. becoming towards hypomatic. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. That's interesting. That is how uh, many men I've talked to throughout this podcast who have bipolar disorder have realized they have bipolar disorder after being put on an antidepressant for a depressive episode and they get thrown into a very significant mania and then figure out with their doctor that they actually have bipolar disorder. And you continue on meds to this day? I, can, I continue on meds. Uh-huh. And do you continue with the talk therapy? I do. Uh-huh. And how long, so would you consider yourself to still be in recovery, or how would you describe that? Ooh. Yes, I think you're in recovery. I think when you've suffered something like this that 
you are, if you will, recovered and are recovering. I, I think that's the way I look at it. I, I have recovered. I am recovering. So you gain grounds, but I look back and I tell people, I don't know that I'll ever be back at my pre-morbid state where I was at before all of this happened. Mm-hmm. Why but do you believe okay. that? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't concentrate as well. I'm not as focused as I was, whether or not that's due to this illness, but it seems to me that that's been since that time that I'm not able to stay anywhere near as laser focused and to have the concentration that I had before. Right. It it seems like it's pretty tough to really know why, right? I mean, there's this piece of age where some of those things go into decline. There's medicines you're on where there could be some side effects regarding cognition, memory, and so forth. And there is the episodes that you've experienced that could have lasting effects that it sounds like you're leaning towards that one. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Correct. Right. And you are now retired? I retired from the Army in 2014. So my severe depression took place my last year in the Army. And I retired at the end of 2014. I've been working. I'd worked a little bit with locum tenens with the VA in 2015. Then in 2016, I started working at the Hope Clinic in Waxhachie, Texas, where we take care of the medically underserved. I will, however, be leaving uh, there at the end of this month. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Has that work also, have you found that rewarding as well? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. And how are you feeling knowing how retirement hit you, whether or not that was the only thing that that threw you into a depression? Obviously, there were other things going on, too. But knowing that you're leaving Hope Clinic soon, how are you doing mentally regarding that? And is that stuff you're working through with the therapist as well? Oh, yes. Therapist and I talk about that. My sweetheart and I talk about that. And it's and there are reasons uh, there are the additional stresses uh, there that um, aren't appropriate here to talk about but uh, for for leaving that I think will alleviate that but also the no I know that I need to be doing some things just to bring structure to my life I, I don't do well without structure <laughs> so does that uh... Is that fearful for you then? Do you, are you concerned about that, knowing that you have a month left at the Hope Clinic? No, because I have I have projects that I am going to be working on, and at least one one job that I'll be working at. So no. Okay, awesome. And I know, you, and you alluded to it, I think, but I know you mentioned that the power of team in recovery has been an important piece for you, and it sounds to me like that's your your wife your therapist, your psychiatrist. Indeed. I, you can't walk this journey alone. You do need a team to help you. So a spouse, somebody close to you, a friend or friends. I've always had a loving and supportive family, but my sweetheart is bar none, been my number one 
fan and supporter has been there through thick or thin. She saw me down that deep, dark pit and would would be there and just reach down. Honey, you know, time and time again, I'd cry on her shoulder. Yeah. She she was there and she has been there and will be there. But you need those others. You need that, you know, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a counselor, physicians, friends, family, my faith, the church family. All of those people are, are intimate things that make part of your team to help in that recovery. Yeah, I would agree 100%. I have a... I also, in addition to the podcast, I have a blog, and one of my blog posts talks about the importance of a team. And everybody's team may look different, right? But, exactly. But it is so important to make sure you do have that team and people you can reach out to. And I would imagine your spouse, like mine too, uh, you know, I have asked her since my major bouts of depression, let me know if you see something going on with me that's different, and, and let's talk about it. Because if I start to isolate, you know, or not engage with people how I typically do because those were some of my symptoms, then she would obviously notice it and I would encourage her and hope that she would share that stuff with me. Yes. Yeah, so that's awesome. So I know that one of the projects that you uh, may be talking about in your retirement is a book that you're uh, soon to publish, correct? That's correct. Yeah, so tell us about your book. My book is entitled, Wrestling Depression is Not for Wimps, Lessons Learned from an Amateur Wrestler's Fight to Triumph Over Depression. I wrote this book for men, one, to decrease the stigma related to mental illness, two, to encourage men who are struggling to go get help, and three, to offer them practical tips, techniques, and tactics to assist them in their recovery. As you can tell from the title, what I've done is I've taken wrestling anecdotes from my experiences with wrestling, 50 years involved in the sport, and how that applies to depression, if you will, and the recovery from depression. That's fantastic. Did I read that you uh, actually won a contest in order to work with a publisher? I did. Tell us I about won, that. That is really cool. I, I won the Transformational Author Contest in 2015. Um, this was through Transformational Books, and that is Christine Closer's Transformational Books, Transformational Publishing. It was called back then, but now called Capucia Publishing. That's the publisher that my book will come out with um, there. So it was a contest that asked you to submit, and I, you had limited, very limited space in terms of the number of characters you could write, uh, four things there to talk about your transformational story. And I talked about wrestling, and it hinged to my story, talked about how when my cry, my prayers shifted from God, 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 please deliver me from this pit to, Lord, what would you have me learn from this, and how might I use it to help others? And then I began to jot down 
lessons I was learning so that I could share those and how then I was able to share those, uh, for instance, with the uh, hospital staff at Eisenhower Army Medical Center before I retired and with other groups. But that became the genesis for my book. And so that was my epiphany. And so I talked about that was my transformational story. So my transformational story, how it changed me. How would it change my readers if I wrote a book and looking to change their lives for men who are struggling with depression? How would it change my business? Didn't have a business at the time, but a project, uh, a business that I hope to be a speaker and share this to get that message out there to men. In my world, if you will, my world of wrestling and other worlds that I walk in. And then how would this change the world? And again, that world that I live in, there, each of us have our worlds, if you would speak there, in terms of decreasing the stigma related to mental illness and getting people in, especially men, into care. So that was my the four questions that I answered. Submitted those. I believe that was in June. I submitted the que- uh, that in, and then in August I get a call. They tell me, "Skip, you won the contest," and with that you win a publishing package. <laughs> that was just, that was amazing. That was absolutely amazing. That is really really cool. Were you uh, were you shocked at the time? Did you oh, think you had a shot at it? Well, I thought I had submitted a pretty good packet, but you knew you were competing against probably that. And I think they told me there were hundreds of submissions. So you knew the competition was going to be stiff. And I thought, well, even if I didn't win, that was really a good exercise in summarizing those things. But yes, I was pleasantly surprised. That's absolutely fantastic. And then, so winning that prize, then do they give you some kind of timeline? Okay, good luck. You need a book uh, completed by this particular date. Uh, Well, we are supposed to have a much closer timeline, but uh, Christine has this uh, wonderful program set up that walks you through different modules in terms of writing the book. So you're not just thrown to the wolves. Okay, awesome. So very supportive, it sounds like. Oh, yes. And then there's another wonderful lady on her staff, uh, Carrie to read. That's been the so-called, uh, book midwife. That's been working with me. And then they've got individuals that, uh, I've worked with closely to work on the cover or graphic designers and other others there. So they've walked with me step by step, their editor that's worked with me through this. That's fantastic. It's a whole package you, you won. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And so it's soon to be published. Do you have a date yet? We don't have the specific date. Uh, waiting on a couple things in terms of when we want to release that. It's it's locked and loaded in Amazon right now. It's just a matter of when when we want to uh, set that date for release. Awesome. And people can keep tabs on that and find out about a release date by going where? They can go to www dot wrestling is not for wimps dot com 
Awesome. Wrestling is not for wimps.com. Great. That is cool. I'm wondering, does your book touch on, I know you mentioned different walks of life that you fit in. And in my mind, uh, right away, of course, came men in the military, um, medical professionals. Do you speak specifically to those groups of people in your book? Not specifically to those. It's a book that speaks to men. It speaks to men's men, if you will, is the way I, I look at this. Yeah. There, so I don't, I don't uh, have chapters that are specifically for doctors per se. So it's not a book written at a high level, if you will. That here's all the medical evidence and here's all this. I purposely wrote it more simplistically for men who are in the throes of depression. Right. Here's something you can pick up. Here's something you can read a chapter. And then you can put something into action. Yeah. Oh, it sounds fantastic. So I hope that uh, the listeners will bookmark that website, www.wrestlingisnotforwimps.com. They can find out more about you there and more about your book. And Skip, before we wrap up, I would love to ask you, I know you shared lots of different ideas and resources that supported you with your recovery, but if we have a listener right now who's really in the throes of depression, what's one really strong piece of advice that you would give them? Don't suffer in silence. Go get help now. Uh, Yes, absolutely. And, uh, that is so important and can be very, very difficult and is well worth the effort. Make sure you reach out and get the help you need. And Al, may I share this also? Please. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs seventeen twenty two: A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth up the bones. I have written that prescription for thousands of patients. I have it on my business cards. I have it on my letterhead. And how true it is that a merry heart is good medicine. So laugh heartily. And when I was down and broken, beaten, broken, and defeated, I had a broken heart. But laughter truly is good medicine. Absolutely. Well, Skip, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for all of the work you've done. I want to thank you for your time in the military and for serving the country. That's incredible. Your work as a doctor and now, you know, furthering the incredible work you do through your book and uh, public speaking that uh, we look forward to as well. Thank you, Al. It's been my pleasure. All right. Well, thank you again, and make sure you stay healthy. Yes, sir. You too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, 
please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.